All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the actual Anarchy Podcast podcast. We're talking about movies from a Rothbardian anarcho-capitalist perspective tonight. We're bringing an old friend back. He hasn't been on in a long, 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 long time. I think his last his last appearance was right before we introduced the Last Nighters, and so we're going back. I think to episode fifty-seven, the Last Jedi, when we had the professional asshole on. We will introduce him in the Last Nighters portion of the show. Uh, but this is the Actual Anarchy Podcast. This is episode 133, and we are talking about Legends of the Fall. This is a Father's Day special episode because the Anthony Hopkins character is a badass libertarian anarchist father in this movie, and he does some pretty badass stuff. Uh, what a great doing? dad. Hey, babe. Hey, how, how are you doing, Daniel? I'm doing well, my Glad friend Robert. We'll, we'll get into the last nighters in a, in a moment here, but I just wanted okay. to, um, you know, we like to talk about your travels between the East and the West. Oh, yeah. Uh, the show here. So now you're yeah. back on the West Side. Yeah, yeah. I uh, woke up to a beautiful gift this morning. I don't know if you ever get gifts from your your pets. Do you ever get gifts from your pets, Daniel? Uh, Not like a like an Amazon present or something like that. I'm talking like the best they can do. You know, like the head of a ro- robin or something, or like the heart of something. Yeah, maybe. Scalp, scalp no, to- today I woke up with my my cat. She's meowing super loud, and that usually means she's like, "Hey, yo, I got some," you know food for everybody come on come get it and i wake up and there's this baby bunny sitting on my bed and she's sitting right next to it meowing at me and the baby bunny realizes it's not in my cat's mouth at the moment and he takes off then the cat springs after it and then disappears and so then i've got to dig my entire closet out to try and find this baby bunny which essentially it's so minuscule that it can cram itself into any kind of little wedge shaped form. Anyway, it took me like a half an hour to actually get to it while I'm sweating. Finally take it outside, find a nice briar patch to release it into. And then it doesn't want to go anywhere. It's just sitting there. And I'm like, is it broken? I don't know. Finally had to pick it up and drop it. And then it shot off like a little rocket, but yeah, fun. Gifts. This is a really interesting way for Robert to admit that he was getting sweaty in the closet with a bunny, only to have the bunny shoot off like a rocket afterwards. I don't know. <laughs> is that what she... <laughs> no, those are the key moments. Those are the key points of that story. You're right. <laughs> so, Robert, before we get into the last nervous portion of the show, I just want to mention that your audio is cutting out a bit, so we might do better with no video feed. Oh, no. Uh-oh. Okay. Professional asshole, did you notice anything cutting Uh-oh. in and out with his audio? I, I did, but you know, I was able to understand the story well enough that I wanted to let him finish talking about being in the closet. That's very thank you for letting him finish. Letting him finish. Yes. And we are gentlemen on the last nighters here. So we're gonna get into the last nighters portion of the show right after this.
Hey everyone, it's Daniel Elwood and Robert Johnson, The Last Nighters, and The Last Nighters are part of the Launchpad Media, where they're always launching new ideas in your direction. Check it out at thelaunchpadmedia.com. We are going to be doing a Father's Day special tonight with a special guest. This is going to be episode 76. You find the show notes and more at lastnighters.com slash 76. And our guest hails from the East Coast, so it's late for him now. Uh, but he is a father, and this is the Father's Day special. He is the professional asshole. He's rather prolific in masculine communities on Facebook and Minds. He's a friend of mine. We go way back. Uh, we've talked to him before, um, and you can go back into the uh, show notes page at lastnighters.com slash 76 and find uh, the episodes where he has made appearances in the past. But how are you doing, sir? Thank you for joining us for this show, this movie that you have selected. So, I'm doing great. I appreciate you guys having me on. Well, we we do enjoy hanging out with you, and uh, you're, you're, I don't want to say it's like a unique perspective, but it's like a perspective that people are reticent to vocalize. I'll put yeah. it that way. And I, I like the brass balls tactic that you have to just lay it out there. And, you know, I may not always agree with you, but I always respect you. Yeah. Well, at, at this point in my life, my goal is basically to say something that's more outlandish than even I probably believe only for the purpose of getting other people to voice something, like just to be willing to speak up. Like if I, if I can do it, you can do it. Trust me. All right, watch the ways of the master here. So, Robert, how are you doing, sir? You are hey, now buddy. back on the West Side. And, uh, yeah, and it's way sweatier over here. I don't think it's me. It's just sweatier. I think that's all the uh, leftism coming out of Seattle. It's drenching us in tears, creating all the humidity in the air here. All right, yeah, so it sucks. Well, you know, it, it'll cool off, I think. We had, we had a few hot days in a row, but we'll get back down for a little while before we get into blazing hot mid-80s highs of uh, summer that we get here. How long can we push yeah. that pause? Well, I was I thought you would have a response, but it's okay. Let's get into our show here. We're going to be talking about Legends of the Fall, and here's the Google information. Came out in 1994. It's a drama of 2 hours and 13 minutes, 7.5 on the IMDb, 57% Rotten Tomatoes, and 45% Metacritic. However, 92% of the Google users like it. In early 20th century Montana, Colonel William Ludlow, played by Anthony Hopkins, lives in the wilderness with his sons Tristan, Alfred, and Samuel, played respectively by Brad Pitt, Aidan Quinn, and Henry Thomas. Eventually, the unconventional but close-knit family encounters tragedy when Samuel is killed in World War I. Tristan and Alfred survive their tours of duty, but soon after they return home, both men fall for Samuel's gorgeous fiancée, Susanna, played by Julian Ormond, and their intense rivalry begins to destroy the family. Released date January 13, 1995, director's Edward Zwick, and it uh, won an Academy Award for Best Cinematography and a Bronze Wrangler for a Theatrical Motion Picture. And that is the uh, Google information. Robert, your, your response. Yeah, so I would have to say... Whoa. Whoa. Is that me? Hello? No, that is our professional asshole um, picking up his hands off of his computer. He's got to hold it down to uh, eliminate any vibrations. Apologies. Okay. Okay. All right. I was going to say, um, I think the brother's conflict is at the center of this movie, but it also has to do with the trauma that Tristan experienced in World War One, and the trauma that the colonel saw in the, like the, the Indian Wars, I guess they're, this column kind of like the Indian Wars after the Civil War, or they call it as the War for Succession, as he says in the movie. And that... And how that plays out through the film, I think, is really strong. And I don't think that was mentioned in your Google description. They do mention that Samuel dies in World War One, but that that event kind of like reverberates throughout these people's lives. Because I mean, she's 
intent to, you know, marry Samuel. And then she comes back. Well, he doesn't come back. And then she gets it on with Tristan. But then Tristan's like so messed up from the war and then not being able to save Samuel that he's not in any kind of good place dealing with all kinds of demons, even though I don't really think it focuses so much on the war, like your traditional kind of war damage, like shell shock or PTSD or anything like that. It's more like emotional trauma from like cradling your dead brother's body and cutting out his heart and sending that home. Sounds accurate to me. Do we still have Daniel? No. We do. Yeah, we're, we're full of awkward pauses tonight. I thought you were going to say more, Robert. I can say more. What do you want me to say? What should, what should I talk about? You want to talk about this movie? Yeah, let's talk about this movie, but let's go to The Professional Asshole. This is a movie that you uh, selected, and double question here, double fisting the question. Um, one, you know, why Why did you particularly pick this movie? And two, your reaction to the Google description. So I thought the Google description was, um, you know, accurate, if not simplistic, Uh so I, I probably don't have a ton to add to that. But the reason I chose this movie is oddly enough because um, the the father and the family in general in the movie actually hits a pretty resonant chord with me. My wife and I um, are part owners of a cabin up in Montana inside Glacier National Park, which is very close to where this film was shot and where they were supposed to be. Well, not really close to where it was shot, but close to where they're supposed to be living in the movie. And they're Cornish Presbyterians. And I'm Presbyterian, and my wife is Cornish, at least partially. And um, so it's, <laughs> it was just striking a lot of chords for a long time when we wanted to figure out where we wanted to live and what we wanted to do with our lives. Living out in Montana, like sort of off the grid, maybe not having to worry too much about uh, how others perceive us, almost in an agorist sort of a sense, was really a pretty significant temptation to us at the time because we had already spent so much time out there. And everything about it just... Um, uh, I, I sort of am a significantly kindred spirit with the father who, like any real man, smokes cigars and works with his hands and, um, you know, killed small children at some point in his life or something like that. Oh, well, all right. All right. Well, yeah, I this is a movie that I thought played really, really long for what it was. And it wasn't clear to me what the story was. They start off with um, one stab, who is this Cree nation uh, Indian fellow who is in advanced age and recalling all this stuff and talking about the letters that went back and forth between the participants and all of this. But it seems to center the story on Tristan being one of those types who is sort of, sort of going to be like legendary or crazy. Right. I think it was said of, um, of John Lennon that um, somebody was talking about the type of guy that he was. And they were like, yeah, he's either going to be like really famous and amazing, or he's going to be another Hitler. Like he just had that spark to him. Like something about him is going to make huge moves. And I think that's how we're presented with this Tristan character, who you know by the end of the story, which I don't want to like jump ahead to you know forty five minutes from now, but um, it's contrasted with his own flesh and blood brother, who plays by a very different path and gets different results. Yeah. So it, it's interesting that this movie is definitely meant to be in some ways the prodigal son the story of the prodigal son but somewhat in reverse because it's the son who stays with the father that's the prodigal son and it's the the son that kind of like leaves the father is the is the other brother so alfred even says in the movies i live by all the laws of men and god and everyone still loves you tristan Moore, who broke them all and has generally brought pain on our family and yet my father loves you more um, 
Susanna, who is, you know, the youngest brother, Samuel's fiance at one point. She loved you more, even though she eventually married me. It's just one stab loves you more. Everybody loves you more, you know, and um, you haven't you haven't actually helped them in any way. So in a sense, it's it's like the prodigal son, except in, in the original prodigal son. The prodigal son lives a profligate lifestyle and leaves, whereas Tristan actually stayed closer to his father in a sense. Yeah, there was that brief period where he was like sorting himself out um, on the high seas and in Borneo and wherever else, smoking opium and having orgies for a few years. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. I mean, once he resolved himself and and grew into the man that he was going to be, then he was much more there to be connected with his father, take care of his father who suffered a stroke at at the same, you know, at at a time when um, it was revealed Tristan's letter to Susanna that, you know, whatever we had is dead and as dead as I am and marry another. And that was shattering to uh, Ludlow because he had revered his son. He played favorites with his sons. And, you know, I, I have two daughters. I can't play favorites between them, but I was a favorite of my grandfather. And so I kind of know uh, a little bit of what, about what that's like and how resentful others um, can be of that situation. And that plays up with, um, with Alfred and Tristan here, but well, it's interesting. I, it's interesting how the title of the movie kind of plays into that theme because most people, and even when the, the name of the movie is translated into other languages, it usually gets translated like something um, like Legends of Autumn or Legends of Fall Time. But that's not actually what it's supposed to be referring to. The original novel and the, mean, the title of the movie refers to the fall of man from Eden. And there's obviously a lot of Edenic themes in the movie, like the father found his own Eden by crossing a mountain, you know, and Eden was originally surrounded by mountains on all sides. It was a garden. That's the point. So it was the fact that the father played favorites that eventually led to the breaking of his family um, because because he was, in a sense, unjust towards his sons, although he was just in many other ways. Yeah, though, I'd argue that, you know, at that end scene that you that you spoke out about where Alfred played by the rules of man and the rules of God and nobody liked him. And Tristan lived free. He lived free. And I think that's what attracted others to him. But the rules that Alfred lived by were lies. Maybe not the godly rules, but the rules of man that he abided by. He ran for Congress. He took bribes. He signed the Volstead Act or voted for it or whatever. And he he partook of worldly, um, what's the right word, Um, corruption in the political path that he chose. And yeah, it might've been the path to gain him the most influence and most power, the most benefits for himself, but it's also the path that is a false path that's going to drive people away from you unless they're gra- you know, grafting onto you, riding your coattails and like, like those guys who got him to run for Senator or uh, Congressman. Right. And that's what Anthony Hopkins father figure said is like, what's in it for you gentlemen? Why are you promoting my son to be a Congressman? Yeah. And, um, it's interesting that, uh, they do clearly show Alfred participating and taking bribes and unloading liquor with the O'Banion brothers, who are the ones, um, you know, rum running. And eventually this leads to uh, the death of Tristan's family, um, his, specifically his wife. Who, And I suppose in a sense it leads to the death of Susanna, too, who is the youngest brother's original fiance. But um, it's funny how... Alfred, like the the closer, the more he decides to serve his his country, quote unquote, uh, by going to war and by running for Congress and by signing the Volstead Act and helping its 
its enforcement, even though he's also undermining it by helping the O'Banion brothers bring in liquor. Um, and even going to the point where he's defending a police officer who negligently murdered uh, Tristan's wife in, I mean, we, we can talk about that later, but the further, the more he serves his country, the further away he is from the rest of his family and his father and even his own wife. But the more he decides to pull away from when he eventually kind of repents of that and comes back and decides that his family is more important than his country, that's when his family is re-annealed. All right. I want to, I want to devote some time to Robert because the professional asshole and I have been doing a twosome for a while. We want to invite you in on this. Um, do you have a response Ooh, to anything that hey. we brought up so far? I, you Usually we do this in a bit of a linear way, but we've sort of been jumping around towards the end already. Um, and you're very good about telling the narrative of the overall scope of the story. So um, twofold, you know, any response to what we said so far, and then maybe give us a bit of a structure to follow and uh, take it away. Well, I, I do rather want to kind of just go back to the beginning. I, I, I'm just looking at my notes here. And the very first thing I wrote down was the like some some john q law types riding up to the to, to the ranch and we get a real sense of the colonel's character right off the bat when they're looking for one of his ranch hands and he's like oh yeah that guy yeah i think he passed through here like five years ago he's off in wherever and they're interested in you know what is he what are you what are you looking for him for and they're like oh i'm sorry that's that's a private issue and he's like oh really you're a public officer aren't you but they're not even so much concerned with the state's opinion on his ranch hand guy because they know him to be a good guy. So they're not even that concerned about it. So that just kind of shows we get an insight to the colonel's character. He has far more trust in his own you know, sense of a person's character than in trusting the, some government worker's opinion, which is uh, pretty damn cool. It really sets the tone for who this guy is for the rest of the film. Yeah, you say it's a private nature, but uh, that's a public office you hold there, Sheriff. Yeah. I thought that was a really good line. But, you know, I got to I got to say, in watching this movie, I feel like perhaps it wasn't pieced together as well as it could have been. And maybe a rewatch, as long as it was, a rewatch after an analysis such as this um, will make the movie a better watch. Like, I didn't realize at the time that that was the ranch hand they were looking for. Like, they have this sketch and it sort of resembles them, kind of. Um, and I didn't realize that that was the O'Banion brothers or is that what they are? The O'Banion brothers. And they were the ones running liquor. So what did the ranch hand do that the O'Banion brothers would be interested in? Because there is a resolution, you know, at the end, because they end up in that, um, you know, incident where they kill uh, Tristan's wife. That's uh, what's his name? Um, Decker's child. That's his daughter. Right. So there is a full circle to it. But in the time when this is presented in the first, you know, 20 minutes of the movie, I have no idea who, any of these people are or what's going on. I do appreciate Hopkins um, response to them. Uh, but I think without the underlying knowledge of who they are and what eventually happens, it's very unclear what's going on when you're, when you're watching this movie in real time. Well, what's really interesting, and this is probably a, a detail that I had not picked up on the first, even couple watchings of this, but uh, Decker, the character, if you look closely at him in a couple of scenes, they've put makeup on where he has like a rope burn around his neck. And it's clearly uh, they're trying to show that at some point somebody tried to lynch him. So I don't know. Aha. Interesting. No, I did not notice that. But I did. I mean, I didn't. I, I felt the same as you, Dan Daniel, at the very beginning. It's like, who is this guy? Who are they looking for? It's clear that they maybe they know him if they're going to lie for him. But but then you watch the movie and as it goes on, that character, every time like some stranger comes around and it might be a law guy, he like dips his hat down low and kind of starts walking away. 
So it's like, okay, yeah, that was the guy. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of like revealed in those subtle cues. But I feel like it sort of diminishes storytelling if if you're just going to be there watching it at the time, you know, like, who the hell is this? What's going on? You know, it's it's confusing. And I don't know how else they could have done it other than have people who've read the book come and watch the movie, because I'm sure the book would explain, you know, all of this stuff here. But they really yeah. need... go ahead, Robert. Well, I'm of two minds of it. I mean, on the one hand, I understand your position. It is a little bit confusing and you're, you're kind of in the dark. But at the same time, there is something to be said for the characters knowing more than the audience. And you're just kind of like watching their world unfold. And then you kind of the story unfolds to the audience. So leaves yeah, it more yeah. of a mystery. You know what I'm saying? If they're deftly handling that, you know, and then there's like a reveal like, oh, that's that guy. But I don't feel like there really was that moment of, oh, that's that guy. Fair enough. I think it probably could have been solved by a 30 second clip, probably in the first five minutes of the movie where, you know, Decker comes along and, you know, asks for work. And, um, you know, they, they have some artful dialogue to show that he's on the run, but he's not otherwise dangerous. He's not a, a harmful man. He's just, you know, broke some broke some uh, some assholes law somewhere who gives a crap where. Yeah. And that may be a, a scene in the book that we didn't get, but that probably would have helped along the storytelling just a, a little bit. I don't yeah. think the movie suffers too much without it. But, yeah, I, I could see that being a, a good scene. And yeah. Decker in and of himself is an ancillary character. I mean, uh, his his daughter is more important than Decker himself. Yeah, I'd agree with that. We're, we're kind of nitpicking here. Um, what do you guys think about? I want to get into the very beginning. Right after that, the next notes I have are the boys wanting to go to war. And this, I don't know if you guys listen to like Hardcore History or anything like that, but Dan Crown did a great series on World War I recently. I think it's still available for free if anyone wants to check that out. But this movie obviously doesn't get into a whole lot of the World War One. The boys just kind of go there, Sam gets killed, and then they're like done with World War One. So it's not a big part of the movie, but of course the repercussions are big. But in the very beginning, when the boys, especially Sam, are really talking about why they need to go to war, and the boys are like, we need to defend our allies. And like, you know, defend what is theirs. And, and then the colonel's like, yeah, defend what's yours. Not someplace you've never been. What are you talking about? But Samuel describes the Germans in World War I as being naked aggression. And I don't know how the news portrayed, you know, the news propaganda portrayed the Germans at the time. I know there was a lot of propaganda with them, like barbecuing people and killing, you know, whole cities and whatnot. And hindsight's twenty twenty, And, you know, the, the true story is better told. I'm not saying it's all coming out. But the... Germans in World War One. Carlin does a good job of explaining how World War One began, you know, basically from the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand by Gavrilo Princip in Sarajevo, and that triggered World War One basically by this spider web of alliances and defensive pact treaties. And it's really hard to call out the Germans as being the bad guys. Like I know they got painted as that, and the Treaty of Versailles was brutal against the German people. But it's, it's really this, I mean, you're talking about a Europe where almost every ruler is like a cousin of another ruler. So it's like they all know each other. It's like uh, the, the British ruler was like a cousin to the Kaiser. And they're like, they called them like, you know, cute little nicknames. And they all hung out, you know, from time to time. And Tsar Nicholas was uh, related to the Kaiser as well. Right. So it's like this. And they all had, you know, it's not like 
they all intensely hated each other and whatnot. And this is just the Germans rolling out and smashing people. And it, I would I would argue that World War II was much more of a German land grab than any than anything in World War One happened. But anyway, Sam thinks and he says that joining World War One is the quote only honorable thing to do. Yeah, go ahead. If you want to jump in on that, it, it's interesting how in the movie there's a repeated theme that you have a far greater duty to your family than you do to your country because countries being ruled by far off people who don't necessarily care about their individual constituents have no real reason to care about how many people die in war. Napoleon certainly didn't. Um, most rulers are more than willing to send young boys to the slaughter by the hundreds, uh, thousands, and even millions in order to gain a few political points. So why would I waste my time, energy, money, and resources and my family, which is my most important resource, in order to support this when I don't have to, especially if I'm not being forced to? Um, I could understand if you're being you know, conscripted into service, how you might, well, I'll go and I'll just I'll try to stay out. I mean, I'll maybe improve my chances of surviving by staying low in a ditch and being a disloyal jerk. But hey, who cares, right? But to go to go volunteer for a far off political thing um, and, and Samuel, who, by the way, if anybody watches this movie and wants to know, Samuel uh, is played by the same uh, boy who is Elliot and E.T. So forget that's fine. But uh, this is this was like his first adult role, really. But, you know, his argumentation was they already killed two of our cousins. And the father responds to the cousins you never met who live in who live in England. You, you don't know them. Right. Yeah, uh, there's a great quote later on in the movie by the colonel who's arguing with Alfred. And he's like, Samuel was a soldier. Soldiers die, sent to their slaughter by men in government. Yeah, which, exactly. Which is exactly what happens. They they don't care. that Like you said, they, they, they win political points or they're, yeah, I don't have the words yeah. right now. Well, I'll just pile on to that because uh, he goes on to further say, men like you, damned you, damned you to hell. Because his son was working for the government at that point. And uh, the colonel had been burned by government in the Indian Wars and the War of Secession, which he calls it appropriately. And he talks about it with the guys who want his son to run for Congress. Well, the solution for the Indians was to kill them, burn women, children, whole villages. That's sure. the that's government's solution. And I haven't seen anything from then till now to show me that they know any other solution other than that. Uh, and he goes on to say uh, in the film, civilized is no word to describe the affairs of this world. Right. And that government has neither wisdom nor humanity. And then Alfred responds to that by saying that he's going to inject wisdom and humanity into Congress. Got to get the right people in there, Robert. You just got to get the right guy. It's, we just haven't found the right guy yet, Daniel. I'm sure it'll work at some point. We just got to find the right one. Well, and he absolutely got Lord Acton. I mean, he may have had good intentions. His father tried to tell him otherwise, but he went along with it. He signed the Volstead Act. He was uh, running alcohol behind the scenes, giving government protections to his crony friends who are giving him kickbacks. You know, it, it, uh, it's just the corruption is on display in this film. And I just love the Hopkins character, man. He's, <laughs> he's calling him out for everything. And he was, he was probably a Kool-Aid drinker back in the day, you know, back in, in what we would consider the, or what is normally called the civil war. You know, he was probably f fully on board with that. Uh, but right, then right. It comes time to, uh, you know, he was trying to protect lives in the Indian wars, you know, get people out of harm's way and the government just slaughtered them. And so he, he got soured on that and he walked away. 
And you literally see that at the beginning of the movie where he just looks at, you know, this line of uh, people being marched across the country in shame. And he picks up his sword and throws it down to the ground, throws his gloves down and throws his hands up. And one stab is in there in the, in the background dressed in a Union Army uniform with uh, presumably his oldest son. Right, because he was um, one of the civilized tribes, right? So he was yeah. part of the part of the U.S. Army. Yeah, he could he could be. Which, again, I, I tried to figure out a timeline for this movie. It's a little tough, as far as I can tell. Um, he must have been involved with some of the Indian wars that happened in the late 1880s and early 1890s in the Dakota territories. Um, yeah, yeah, that's he, what I kind of found. It's just it. It's not. I mean, I could see him being born young enough to have been witness to the Civil War, but probably not a participant, because even if he was 60 in 1913, that would have put him as being born in, you know, 1853. And he would have been he would have been 12 at the end of the Civil War. So it's just it's a little hard to figure out exactly where it is. But he he certainly uh, served during the Indian campaign of the 1870s through 1880s must have quit. I mean, he was he was in long enough to become a colonel probably by about the early 1890s or so, or maybe middle 1890s. Yeah, and then one stab, um, he's telling the story, right? And Tristan actually dies from the bear fight in 1963 as a old man, you know, in his late 60s. Yeah. So yeah. Until, you know, in almost 1970, one stab. Well, and I, I looked at some of the, um, they had uh, grave markers at the end of the movie, and I was like, oh, let me see if I can try to find dates on this. Not that they were consistent, and, and they weren't actually, but it looked like, uh, you know, Alfred was born in 1892, and Samuel was born in 1895. So Tristan must have been born sometime in the middle there, which seemed like they were portraying the boys as being a little older. So I don't know, but Samuel was, you know, died in 1915, so he was 20, so that you know, maybe Tristan was 22 and Alfred was 23, 24. Yeah, I really do, uh, to go back to the beginning of the war thing, I really do appreciate that all three boys went to war, even though their father is basically like this libertarian anarchist guy. I mean, I think I would probably do a better job as a father to keep my kids out of war, but I'm not going to judge. I mean, the movie has to happen. But this is at a time when there's still a whole great, a lot of romanticism concerning war. And I think that was part of the colonel's job to be like, no, this is some horrific shit. You don't want to deal with it. But a lot of the men, especially like at the beginning of World War One, were going to war and like afraid that the war would be over before they got to get into combat. They really saw it as this way of graduating into manhood that, you know, you really made your bones or whatever. You just really kind of like this kind of camaraderie that you would go and you'd become a man after going to war and you'd come back and you know, be this hero and whatnot. And uh, I'm really glad that the character of the colonel is there to do, to, you know, to throw water on that, but also the the reality of war, not so much the horrors of World War One because it's more about the emotional loss of Samuel and whatnot, but at least that they had this great loss and they come back completely changed people and they're having to deal with it their entire lives. Because that's what happens when you go to war. You come back and you are completely different you are a mess. You, you, there's maybe brief glimpses where you were old, your old self, but people deal with massive, massive trauma. I mean, we did a movie called Rambo. Well, of course, everybody knows Rambo, but it was pretty much all about uh, a Vietnam vet dealing with the trauma that he went through from the war. And that's, you know, light, light duty compared to what people are dealing with uh, these days. Right. And, and just to pile on that a little bit more, um, you talked about the Dangerous History podcast talking about World War One. 
Um, Ralph Rako has great lectures on World War One and, and the lead up to it. So I'm going to post that in our show notes page as well. But uh, if you guys and question my man card here, but uh, if you've seen Downton Abbey, uh, you yes, s- I have. demonstrated in the lead up to the war, World War One, that they are excited to go and see the world and do something uh, heroic. And, and, you know, they were afraid they were going to miss it. It's at least how it's portrayed in the movie or in that show. And I think that that is something that the Samuel character, who's a bit naive, he's the youngest one. He's the one who's about to get married. He hasn't even uh, had sex yet. You know, he, he doesn't feel like he's a, a man yet. And so he has this big drive to go and prove his manhood. And I think Tristan goes just to protect him. And I'm not sure what Alfred's motivation is, but Tristan only goes because his family goes. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know what Alfred's point in going in is either. He's kind of, he's definitely not the central character in this film. And I'm not sure his, his motivations are entirely clear in all the, any of the things he does, because the boys are also different, or at least Tristan and Alfred are so different. How he exactly got that way, because there's the mother isn't involved in the story, right? I mean, she writes letters here and there, but it's not like her influence really influences Alfred and the colonels really influences Tristan. It's not really done that way. Yeah. And Tristan refuses to even speak of her after she leaves. So it, it's funny how loyal, Tristan seems to be to his own family. His concerns are only for his own family. And if you leave the family, you're you're outside of you're outside of the uh, circle of trust, fucker. Got <laughs> yeah, my eyes on you, fucker. You know what? I I actually think maybe the motivation for Alfred uh, agreeing to go to the war was because Samuel was intent on going, and Alfred wanted approval from his father. And so he he was the first to say, "Okay, I'm going too," because I want your approval, Dad. And then. But dad looks to Tristan to protect Samuel. But but dad doesn't want any of them to go. He just wants them to stay. Or and then when they, they Sam's like, I'll bring you back like the pin of the the helmet of the Kaiser. He's like, just you come back. I don't give a shit. I don't care about some dumb hat. Just just come back alive. Which means he's gonna die. Right. right. And and you know he he did try to dissuade them. And even Tristan tried to get Susanna to dissuade Samuel from going. And Susanna was like, No, you make him not go. And I guess Samuel was so intent on going that he trekked to Calgary in Canada, which these days, or at least in the 70s, people were going to Canada to avoid going to war. Uh, It's a little bit different back then. But yeah, I I don't know why. um, I mean, you still you need to have this story happen, but it seems like Susanna and the dad and Tristan all telling him, hey, this is a terrible idea. Don't do it. Might have had a little bit more influence on him. Yeah, um, it's interesting that uh, we, we should probably talk more about the character of Susanna for a bit because she is herself sort of another point of contention. So Tristan himself is a point of contention for the whole family because he's so he's such a, a passionate person in whatever way you want to define that. He is so influenced by his passions that he um, divides his own family his father is set against his brother and his brother is set against himself. And, you know, he's, it's like he wants good for his family, but because he wants what he wants so intently, it ends up becoming a problem for the rest of his family. And Susanna is almost kind of like that too. Her introduction to the family disrupts its dynamic. Like almost the second, I mean, she, she gets off the train and almost the second she sees Tristan, she has given him fuck me eyes. Like you wouldn't believe Right, and Alfred is all of, all over her with the googly eyes too. Yeah, exactly. So, I, yeah, what was Sam doing really? Bringing that piece of ass, you know, into <laughs> the ranch. I mean, she's the only one there. I, no, you, you do not bring a mare into a pen full of studs. I mean, come it, on. It, it just seems like a big time rookie move, you know. 
Yeah, I know, man. Exactly. Especially when you got Brad Pitt as a brother. I mean, geez. Yeah, just talk about undercutting yourself. Fox in the hen house. Exactly. Um, what did you guys think about Susanna as a character? Because it seemed to me that um, she actually, aside from being a plot point, she's almost a MacGuffin. She's actually not all that interesting herself. No, she seems to be defined by how she interacts with the, the sons. Right. Which I, I'm not going to even say is bad. I mean, in many ways, that is kind of the, the way of the world. Not that you know women are disinteresting on their own necessarily, but they are a point of contention and an impetus for male action. For sure. Yeah. And, but this is, this is probably a movie where one of, I wouldn't even call her a protagonist, but she definitely doesn't necessarily have any agency of her own. Yeah, I, I would probably pretty much put her as a MacGuffin. Uh, right. Because, yeah, she's, she's basically a MacGuffin. Yeah, I wasn't sure other than this is probably just defining a MacGuffin what her point of being there was other than to move the plot along because she you know was engaged to Samuel but then she goes there to the ranch and Alfred wants her and she wants Tristan and so it becomes this little tangled web and then after Samuel dies Alfred basically offers himself to her and she's like no not going to happen buddy sorry and then as soon as she sees Tristan it's like Couldn't oh, be drier it's on you know it's on and they have a passionate, you know, however long, uh, whatever the timeline is, a few months maybe. But he's been damaged from the war. He's got PTSD, I'm sure. And he's he's wandering. He's lost. He's His brother died. He cut his heart out, brought it home. He scalped a bunch of Germans in response and went crazy and probably spent some time in the brig. Because uh, they talk about, we you know, when, when Alfred gets home from the war, that uh, Tristan has written a letter. He's like, yeah, it's going to take me a little bit longer to get home. So I think he was probably uh, dealing with some court-martial or some other issue well but, he said he said uh that he had asked his grandfather uh, grandfather ludlow if he could spend some time at sea with him so that was um be what it was then but yeah he he needed some time to find himself yeah and uh what did um colonel ludlow call it the madness you know trying to trying to quell the madness or the the spirit of the bear it would sometimes like be quiet enough to where he could sort of interact more normal but then he would rise to the surface and and, and tristan would need to like kind of just be alone, you know, and, and be out and just being, uh, you know, a hunter and, and a traveler and exploring the world to avoid his own in, internal demons, I think. Yeah, it, it seemed like, uh, I mean, it's the story arc of Tristan in general for him to um, not be able to, you know, stay in any one spot for more than a day or two or, you know, yeah, they compare him to a bear consistently, like it's this un, untamable animal. Speaking of which, let's talk about the the time when they all go for a drink at the bar. Yeah, right. That was uh, definitely not uh, not the best uh, scene there. Not not so good for Tristan there. So the four of them go to some bar, and the barkeep's like, "Yeah, I can only serve you three instead of the four because we don't serve Indians." And Tristan takes some umbrage to this and basically, you know, tries to start a fight. And then does grabs the guys like blackjack or billy club and bashes him over the head and then sticks like a gun in his head. And yeah, I get it. You know, racism is bad, but this guy has his own personal preferences. We don't know his motivations for not wanting to serve Indians. Maybe they raped and murdered his family. It doesn't we don't know his we don't know, but it also doesn't matter. It's his private property. He can serve that guy or not. And Tristan does not. I mean, this is his, his madness going through, right? Because this is his friend, this is his family, this is the most important thing in the world, and this is the hill he's going to die on, right or wrong. Yeah, I think this was a, a moment of him breaking into that emotional, you know, that emotional sense like you were talking about earlier, professional asshole, 
because th- this is a, a period where he's come back from the war and he's he's with Susanna and things seem to be going well, things are passionate, but then he starts becoming more distant. And then this event happens at the bar. And really the right answer, and Robert, you basically just said this, is you order four, he says, no, just three beers, because I'm not serving that guy. The right answer is, okay, no beers. We'll take our business elsewhere. Now it's bumfuck Montana, so who knows if there's another establishment nearby. But I mean, that's how you deal with racism, is if he makes it known, you don't partake in him. You don't you don't uh, go to his bar or his shop or whatever. Right, why would you want to patronize him if he's this Indian racist guy? And you're best friends with an Indian guy. So why well, would you want to financially support him? And it, it's funny, too, because the way they were presenting uh, Colonel Ludlow there is that, you know, he might have he, he obviously had the same distaste Tristan had for the racism, but he was willing to negotiate with the guy. He even said, uh, no, Tristan, I'm handling it like I, I'm about we're about to have a negotiation here. And it, it seems that, you know, the way they portray the colonel is that he is competent enough to be able to make a negotiation like that without any major problems. He'd, he'd be able to get the guy to acquiesce to his desires, uh, you know, and he sure. And I also, I, Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. And he, and he correctly points out like, Hey, you know, <laughs> this guy outweighs you by 20 pounds and he's got a billy club under his head and he should crack your skull and, you know, good riddance to you that, you know, uh, but so it's just, yeah, it's the fact that Tristan, it's not just that, you know, he, it's, he just can't, control himself much less uh his own life and situation and you know we move on from that scene to one where he's trying to you know free a calf from a barbed wire fence and is a reminiscent scene to the way his brother died and he just he just cannot handle it sure yeah i just want to go back to uh hopkins in that scene though with in the bar where i think i think his character is recognizing you know he's the wrongness of tristan's actions not only for the fact that yeah he could get killed but that yeah you are attacking this guy's like private property. You don't have any right to do this. And then yeah. also he's noticing the madness in his son and it's worrying him. So I think it's really well acted by Hopkins in that scene. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's seeing his, the Tristan is just being emotional. He's just being an SJW Antifa. Uh, right, exactly. And, you, know. you don't not, you're not okay. give me the thing I want? Yeah, right. you, 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 guys are, you guys are wrong on that. You know, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Have you ever met a social justice warrior with abs? <laughs> oh shit, right. He works that way too much. We stand corrected. <laughs> and he eats all that meat. Yeah, no, you're He right. just eats yeah, it's like he lives on a pure meat diet, you know, doesn't even know what fiber is. I just... Yeah, but but this is like part of that build up to Tristan coming to that breaking point, right? And then he abandons Susanna and he goes on his PTSD spirit walk, uh, so he can hunt and sail and do opium and Asian ladies. Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't think they invented ladyboys at that point, so um at least he wasn't, you know, really sinning against God. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, it leaves that part out. Maybe it's in the book. Yeah, yeah. right. But the, uh, you know, finally, um, they get a letter from Tristan. He's been gone for who knows how long. And he tells Susanna, you know what? I'm dead inside. And so is our relationship. And this is the thing that I think shatters Colonel Ludlow. And that's kind of what precipitates the stroke, right? There's this big fight between Susanna and Alfred and Colonel Ludlow because the colonel's like, oh, Tristan's going to come back and marry her. And that's the way it's going to be. And, you know, he he's doing the playing the favorites thing and, and seeing Tristan in the most favorable light possible in the situation. And Alfred's actually kind of right. You know, like, yeah, Tristan's gone and he's not coming back for you. You know, he might come back, but he's not coming back for Susanna. Right. And I and I and I tend to think that Alfred is absolutely correct in that scene. I, if you intend on marrying this woman, 
and everybody, I mean, it seems like everybody's kind of lying to themselves about Tristan and how far gone he is. Because it does say something to, about somebody when they are like, yeah, we're going to get married. And then he fucks off for like five years. That's kind of action speaking louder than words at that point. Yeah, though I don't give um, Alfred total clearance on this because he does allude to the fact that maybe Tristan purposefully didn't save Samuel in order to get Susanna. And oh, he had yeah. made that accusation to Tristan. And Tristan's like, you ever say that again? We're not brothers. Like, you get this one time. Oh, yeah. He goes, how convenient for you that Samuel is dead. That's some that's some heavy shit. Right, right. <laughs> and, you know, in in the horrific World War One scene, and they just show... I mean, I was watching that with my wife. And I was like, I just said to her, like, look how pointless this is. Look how just a waste. These just waves of people just throwing themselves at this barbed wire and gunfire. And, and that's just, how it was. Yeah, it's horrific, you know? Yeah, that's what they did. That's that, that was very accurate. But but then um, Tristan tries to save Samuel and, of course, can't. He's a moment too, you know, he's a, a few steps too far away from those guys who machine gun him. And then he just brutally murders. Well, he blo- brutally kills the guys who killed his brother. I don't think, I think that, see, that's tough because, like, it's no longer defense of another because he's clearly dead. But it's like immediate retribution. It's like unleash the cops, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I totally give. If I saw somebody kill my brother in front of me, yeah, I mean, that'd be the end of them. And right. I wouldn't feel bad about it for one second. Now, do you give him a pass on going out and getting all the scalps later, though, from just other random Germans? Uh, that is a hard question. I, I would I would probably say no, I don't give him a pass because, um, I mean, he's already recognized that the war is futile. He's just there to defend Samuel. So now that Samuel is dead, his purpose for being in the war is is gone. So it is pure revenge tactics, and it's revenge on like it's not it's revenge on nobody in particular. It's like almost like taking it out on a tree or something like that. Except these trees are human beings, and but they are engaged in in combat. I mean, they are soldiers, and they are there to you know if they see you, they'll kill you. Right. Yeah. And it's I mean in that sense, I mean you're right. It's not murder in the sense that he didn't stalk somebody out who wasn't involved at all to kill them. Uh, so I, I, I can't say that it's like murder in that sense, but I mean, like the very fact that he took all the scalps, for instance, is the whole point is to, you know, show everybody uh, how superior he is as a warrior compared to them and to make his his claims about his um, his fortitude in some way. So the very fact that he's collecting scalps is in a sense celebrating the deaths as opposed to doing them in a uh, a dispassionate way which we might grant an executor or i'm sorry an executioner um a stay on the fact that he's killing a human being because he's doing so only as a service to a you know humanity or society or whatever clearly that's not the case for tristan he's doing this not just as revenge but as like proof and celebration he's he's reveling in it yeah and the madness has taken over i i I think i think that he's not uh in a way of he doesn't have the ability to control his emotions right and so this is like one of his initial breaking points, Samuel dying and then him kind of like seeking this revenge, this very uh, graphic revenge. And then when he gets home, he can sort of quell it for a little while, but then it sneaks back up because he hasn't dealt with it, right? If we're talking Jordan Peterson style, he hasn't dealt with the demons and he has needs to save his father from the dragons. It's the whale. You, you, have you even read Western civilization? Have you even <laughs> comprehended Western civilization as it? Uh, whatever. I can't, I can't fake him as well as I can fake others. All right, Robert, chime in here. I don't know where else you guys want to go because I I would love to talk about the bootlegging. Yeah, let's let's get to that if you don't have any opinions on the uh, the scalping. 
Well, I you know, I think it says something about the human mind where you're beyond any kind of civilized thoughts when you start hunting humans and taking trophies. If you're at the point where you are trophy killing, I think your your mind is broken at some point. I mean, it's and you know, I'm talking humans, of course. I'm not necessarily denigrating hunters and their trophy taking or whatever, but yeah, I, and it it happens throughout human history in terms of war. I mean, you watch a movie like Full Metal Jacket and people have that necklace of ears. Um, it, it's, it's what people do when they have gone over to the dark side in their brains. Yeah. I mean, um, it's not as horrific as killing a truly innocent person, like say on a street serial killer style, but it's, um, it, it's not, it, this is not just, you know, normal war, um, you know, this is not like dispassionate war killing where it's, well, I'm defending my land because it's my land and these are foreign invaders. And it's, it's clearly it's clearly a psychologically demented. Well, and politicians would love for the propaganda of war to be this noble, civilized endeavor, this, you know, organized, efficient. We're going to, you know, we're all about our supply lines and we're going to have structures and we're going to have groups and platoons and we're going to have armies and they're all going to be following orders and everything is going to be perfectly organized and regimented and everybody's going to understand their role and what they're doing. And it's really that it, it, it tries to turn this immoral mass murder slaughter campaign into the most, you know, dispassionate, like you're saying, like Borg killing machine. And I'm not sure which is more honest. I, I tend to think Tristan's like psychotic break is a little more honest when it comes to, hey, we're going to have these things called governments and politicians are going to send these young men out to slaughter each other who have never done anything to each other and have no reason to do so other than to this you know, perverse sense of achieving some sense of manhood through doing it. Uh, just twisting this you know, natural human uh, energy and sense of wanting to do right in the world and then doing something horrifically immoral. Yeah. Perverting. Of course you're going to have, you're going to have psychotic breaks. And I think Tristan's is probably more honest. Right. And when governments do it, it's almost machine. Like it's like almost a relentless, unstoppable thing. And what would, what did that guy say in the sixties? You go throw your body in the gears, right? That was back when the, the left was anti-war. Wait, the left was anti-war. Yeah. In the sixties through the, you know, till about 2008. Till Dukakis. Or something like that. It's, it's been so long. I, I, I'm starting to think it's more of a myth. Well, you know, it's a myth just like this movie, which we should probably talk about the myth of prohibition, right? Yeah, let's talk about prohibition. That was something that worked, didn't it? It, it worked fabulously. I mean, as we know, uh, not only did alcohol go away as the historic blight it was on society, but uh, pretty much all the drugs, including the heroin and the, the marijuanas, and I mean, it was all gone. It was, we now have a utopia. And it is, it's just fabulous. I mean, it's great. When you want to get rid of a bad thing, you just make it illegal. And then poof, like a magic wand, these wizards in Washington just make things go away. It's really wonderful. So I only have to pass a law against man buns and suddenly well, Dan's just going to be fucked. Yeah, he's boned. <laughs> well, I mean, with that man, it is a crime against humanity. I mean, it is a hate crime. That haircut. Well, as it is with that haircut, man, he might be getting boned as it is. Well, he may, he's kind of looking, yeah. It's hanging bottom. I don't know. It's flowing. It's Tristan style. He's looking. Style of the movie here. He's looking very cute. Do you spend like half your free time like walking under waterfalls? Yeah. Your picture taken? Okay. I do. Yes. Fabio covers. That's what 
Fabio's retired. I'm now at your grocery checkout. Oh, I'm glad you're making some money. Good. Yeah. So let's talk about the bootlegging because Tristan, like I said earlier, he's he's living free. He's not recognizing man's laws here. He's like, this is something that I want to trade with people. They're willing to pay me. I'm willing to provide it. And he goes about and does it. And uh, the O'Banion brothers kind of gave him a pass if he's sort of below the surface and not taking too much of their of their business because they're in the government protected monopoly position here. Um, I mean, they they were they were like the original gangsters, right, in league with the government. But yep. they weren't. Um, I mean, they they delivered uh, booze to the party that uh, <clears throat> that Alfred had at his house, right? Yeah, uh, at the big climactic scene that was a bit of a jumble, I think. They definitely, yeah. They were. I mean, they were showing, they were showing Tristan in a warehouse making deliveries in back alleys in Helena, and then they showed, um, you know, Alfred like overwatching some booze being delivered at his house, and then the O'Banion brothers making other deliveries for alcohol elsewhere. And it all kind of got jumbled up because there was no clear shots, close-ups of faces, and things like that. There was no dialogue. It was like from you know twenty feet out in every way. So you had to like kind of know and intuit what was already going on as opposed to them clearly spelling out you know i mean like the first time i watched this movie i was i had not been aware originally that alfred was having alcohol delivered to his house you know um so it's it's like it, it should have been a little clearer in the editing and the cutting but i mean you know what are you gonna do right because this is when tristan had gotten out of prison and was now going to kill the O'Banion brothers. Well, I think that was a little after he was he was do, doing successfully at uh, the rum running or uh, at uh, uh, whatever. But uh, yeah, I mean, it was uh, after the O'Banion brothers came and threatened him the first time that he really started to have this problem, which was kind of at the end of that uh, that montage. All right, yeah, I'm trying I'm trying to recall exactly when it was. I know they threatened him and said, you know, if if your brother wasn't a congressman, we would have dealt with you long ago. And if we catch you again, it'll be the last time. Yeah, he just walks away from that like he's unthreatened. Right, living free. But I think during that montage that, that I'm thinking of where um, it's sort of interspliced with the party and the police officer who had fired the machine gun and ended up killing Isabel too, who was Tristan's wife, and Tristan had gone to jail for that for 30 days or whatever, and he then he gets out. He wants revenge against the O'Banions. And so he goes into that warehouse and ends up getting the fight. He He has the guy pinned down with a knife and cuts his face, but then... For whatever reason, he doesn't like finish it. I guess, you know, you need to have like some action in a movie, I guess. So then they end up tussling and then he ends up on a pitchfork. But it's it's kind of interweaved with the party, but then also Susanna cutting her hair and then shooting herself. So this is all like the emotional climax of the entire movie. And Susanna's whole thing was she never got over Tristan and she was never happy with Alfred, even though Alfred was the only like option available to her or whatever. And he was doing quite well. I mean, she, you know, if you were to look at it from, uh, you know, an objective sense or, you know, whatever's on paper, she really had no excuse to be unhappy. It's not like Alfred treated her poorly. He treated her quite well. And, you know, so that was just clearly some emotional instability on her part. She was just obviously not capable of being happy. I think she saw him the same way that uh, Colonel Ludlow saw him when he was working for government as a parasite and as part of the problem. And, uh, rightfully blamed him for the death of Isabel too, because it was his support of that Volstead Act that ended up making this uh, criminal enterprise and this, you know, kind of put the the motion together here. Yeah, perhaps I uh, that'd be um, 
I'm not going to say you're wrong. I, I it just I'd probably have to even view it again or perhaps read the original book to see if there's any insight into her character. But it just I don't know. It always seemed to me like she was she is a character. She was always looking for something better. And when she couldn't get it, you know, she'd become uh, melancholy. So, you know, she's with Samuel originally. And I mean, they introduce her. They say she's a her parents had both died uh, of what I don't remember. But she comes along and. Um, you know, the second she sees Tristan, she wants him. And um, the second, I mean, and she's allowed to stay on at their family house for years at a time, waiting for these boys. And then, you know, when she can't have Tristan, she's, she kind of begs him and says, well, I mean, if I was pregnant, would you still be leaving? And he's like, yeah, I would be. And she, it's just every time she can't have exactly what she wants when she wants it, she becomes pretty deeply melancholy and seems to just sort of sit there staring out over the plains, you know, waiting until she can get what she has or gets gets what she wants. Right, and it's something that she needs, you know, one of these boys to give to her. It's not like something that she's going to go out and achieve for herself. It's like, yeah, she has no, like we said, she has no initiative of her own. What do they call it? Agency? Agency. Yeah, those words, things that, you know, you look up in dictionaries, who knows? What do words mean? I don't know. Well, damn and blast us. We are near the end of our time on the show so any final notes before we get into the summary and review time can we talk about the uh, does anybody have any notes on the final the final fight yeah um i have a few i i I thought it was funny in both um the scene with the with isabel two's death and in um well throughout the movie so there's three separate scenes where they have the police acting as enforcers for private interests the first one with decker at the beginning where he's saying oh you know sheriff that's a public office you hold how are you telling me this is a private affair and then with isabel too they're clearly acting on the the, i mean the o'banion brothers are there when a police officer negligently discharges a machine gun and kills a civilian and he gets quote-unquote reprimanded as told to us by alfred while tristan serves jail time although an unbelievably small amount of jail time compared to what you'd be um, charged with today for even looking at an officer wrong. And then finally, in the final scene, uh, the sheriff himself and two officers show up to um, enforce the O'Banion brothers' uh, law. Yeah, so this just goes to show you that as long as government has favors to sell, uh, they'll be bought. Yeah. Uh, but I thought that the, you, you want to talk about the like the situation, right, Robert, the scenario where the O'Banion is there to kill Tristan with support of the police. Um, and he threatens the family, right? He's like showing the gun to Tristan's son, Samuel. And the father comes out and he knows what's going on. And he got the shotgun that was given to him as a gift by Tristan uh, under his bearskin jacket and ends up stroke and all uh, getting to be able to fire off two shots to take out the O'Banion brother and the uh, police officer with a fire with the, um, with the machine gun. And then the sheriff from the very first sheriff scene he's back again and he's about to shoot colonel ludlow and tristan is going to dive in front of him to save his dad but just before the sheriff can shoot him alfred redeems himself in a moment of putting his family above his government service and shooting the sheriff who's about to kill his dad and his brother yeah i just thought it was a fantastic scene and i I can't you know fault any of the people you know any of the main characters for their actions i mean i think they all acted as they should have. And especially Tristan there, when he was like accepting his own death, when the O'Banions came for him, he said, 
fine. You know, um, I understand why you're here, but you take me away from my boys. You, you don't let them see. And right. I mean, being willing to accept your own death and in such Even a way, an unjust murder. Right. Right. But it, if you're still thinking about like, I've got to still think about my family, even if it means I'm going to die. I mean, those are some those are some serious cojones there. So I got to give it to him. Yeah, it was a very Father's Day moment there. And, and then what, what happens to the bodies of the, the cops? They bury them, and then they drop, drop the car in the Missouri River. Yep. Damn straight. I don't know what, what what happened. I don't know. Yeah, I don't. Hey. Uh, some guy came on my property. Uh, I told him to get out of here. He was gone. I don't, uh, what, what mounds? I don't see mounds. Right, and then Tristan just goes and lives in the mountains for the rest of his life. Pretty uh, much, yeah. And, and he bequeaths his children to, to Alfred, who has now redeemed himself in the eyes of his father and the eyes of Tristan. Uh, and is welcome back into the family and then is given the children to raise as his own. Yeah. And I mean, they say that he went into the, the far north um, country, you know, sort of like up in uh, Calgary area where the hunting was still good and dies from fighting a bear. Yeah. 1963. So he must've been almost 70. Yeah. I mean, I hope to, I hope to be that ballsy when I'm 70. That's a good way to go out. Pull out a, you know? pull out a buoy knife against a grizzly bear and just be like, um, yeah, I feel like I could, I feel like I got a pretty good chance against this one. I mean, maybe not 50-50, but I got a 30% chance of getting out of this. You're telling me there's a chance, like Alfred said to his designer. <laughs> All right. Uh, any other points on that, or should we get into the final summaries here? Find sums. All right. Robert, lead us off. All right. Well, I think there are some, some maybe some uneven acting, and there's some uneven storytelling. But at the heart, this movie has a really strong emotional story to tell uh, even with Suzanne not really having a whole lot to do other than be a counter to the boys um, so maybe that's not like the epic love story it's more a story of these three brothers and more kind of like the two brothers and the father but yeah it's a great story with a really strong father figure who if more fathers were like this guy man I think we'd have a whole lot fewer problems in the world honestly um, he, he's teaching his boys to defend what's theirs, not to go out and take what's somebody else's. It's fantastic. Um, so yeah, this, this, this movie has a, a great story to tell. Uh, it features fantastic characters and I thoroughly enjoyed it. It is a little bit long and maybe a little bit of the storytelling is a little bit, wait, what? But overall, I can't fault too much of it. So I think this is a strong, like 8.2 for me. Highly recommended. Wow. That's a very, very high score. All right, professional asshole, bring it, bring it to the table. Well, um, I really enjoy the movie, um, not just because of the personal connection of, you know, like uh, anarchist Presbyterians living out in the middle of the Montana wilderness and, you know, finding their way, which for a while was a serious consideration of my own, as we've, we've talked about at other times. Um, I, I agree. I agree with Robert that um, the acting, especially on Brad Pitt's part, was pretty weak. Um, on Samuel's part, it was okay. Um, the guy who played Alfred, his name was Aiden Quinn, was was decent acting, pretty pretty darn good acting by Anthony Hopkins. I'm not a huge fan of Julia Ormond who plays Susanna. Um, she in almost every movie she's in, she's she's just there to be disruptive, and she's got like these super big puppy dog eyes that are like, you know, I'm helpless, please come save me type. I'm not into those kinds of heroines. I, I don't know, um, but. Overall, I would I would probably give this movie being a little more assholey than um, Robert. I would probably give it around a seven point five. 
or maybe an eight, but maybe not probably not over an eight, just because of the good strong libertarian themes and the you know the nice cinematography for which it won an award. And uh, I, I'm always impressed by the cabin. Of, I, I, I can never tell if I want to go live on a sailboat or in a mountain cabin or something, but one of those appeals to me. Yeah, you get kind of both in this movie. Yeah, you do. The Javanese hunters with the boar tusks and all that. That was great. Yeah, well, I, I'll say that uh, I thought that this movie was beautiful. I felt like the story was... I didn't really understand what the story really was. And perhaps after our discussion, if I were to watch it again and devote the two and a half hours or so that it would take for me to watch it, I might enjoy it a, a little bit more because it might make a bit more sense knowing that it's the O'Banion brothers at the beginning and it's the farmhand that they're looking for at the very beginning and all of that stuff. Um, so the the story meanders a little bit for me, but I love the libertarian messaging from the colonel and his, you know, even after the stroke, he's like, screw the government, flipping him off. And he, he makes great points, you know, he, like like Robert was saying, if if more fathers were like him, there'd be a lot less war in the world. There'd be a lot less terrible stuff and people would have agency unlike Susanna, uh, and actually do something productive in the world. Uh, and he right, rightly says, you know, government has neither wisdom nor humanity, and their solutions to problems are generally uh, worse than the problem. So for that, and that message alone, I'm going to go with a seven on this movie. Uh, so overall, pretty good. It could have been, I think, done a little bit more cohesively and make a little bit more sense. Perhaps in reading the book, it would have made the movie-going experience more enjoyable. You know how often they'll say the book is better than the movie? I think sometimes you need the book to flesh out what the movie's trying to tell you because the movie can only fill in so much. I'm sure they left a bunch on the on the editing room floor, um, probably something with the ranch hand first showing up. I'm sure that that would have been a scene that they probably would have shot. Um, I, I, I don't know if I have access to any of the deleted content, deleted scenes or, or director's cut, but I'm sure that kind of a thing would have been in there. But overall, it's still a really good movie, and I appreciate you bringing it up. It's a very strong father figure for this Father's Day for episode 76 of The Last Nighters at lastnighters.com slash 76. So thank you, Professional Asshole, for being here with us for this special occasion. You're here. I appreciate you guys having me on, and I always always revel in a chance to unleash my good assholiness. Yes, well, we do appreciate it, and we will have you back again before too long. And speaking of having someone back, Roberts, next week. Oh, we're going to have a returning person we've talked to before. You'll be back. Ooh. So will Doc Anarchy. Ooh. We haven't had him on in a very, very long time. And Dallas we're Buyers Club? Yes, yes. And uh, our last night's audience probably can't even find that in our back catalog. Uh, but I will I will give you guys a link to it in the show notes page for this one at lastnighters.com. But uh, we're going to be doing Tropic Thunder. Oh, that's nice. Awesome. That's nice. That's awesome. So that'll be a, a fun one. Another war movie but uh, with a comedic kick, which I think we could use uh, again. I know we just did Harold and Kumar, and that was a great episode. I feel like we shoehorned in some economics and some libertarianism, <laughs> and it turned yes, out Yes, well. yes. We'll, we'll probably be able to shoehorn some into Tropic Thunder, too. I think so. I think, I think we will. So that'll be a lot of fun. Uh, if you guys like the content we do here, give us uh, some reviews on the old iTunes, now called Apple Podcasts. That'll help get our profile raised so that we will be recommended to others. Also, please give us subscribes on the old YouTube. Uh, we are still working our way towards that 100. And if we get 100, we get a custom URL. Uh, we're so close. We're at 88 right now. Uh, so if a dozen listeners can do that for us, we will get youtube.com slash lastnighters. That'll be great. 
Um, otherwise, thank you, professional asshole, for unleashing your assholiness all over us tonight. And come on back next week for Tropic Thunder. Gang. All right. Good night, everyone. All right, we're still doing actual anarchy for a few more moments. Uh, any final words for the audience uh, from Professional Hassle and then Robert? Well, uh, I just appreciate you guys having me on. And, uh, you know, oh, man, I'm going to have to really start thinking of some extra movies for us to review because I do have some really good libertarian ones. But um, you guys just keep doing what you're doing because I really love hearing about movies from a Rothbardian anarcho-capitalist perspective. And uh, hopefully, hopefully in the future... Um, we can really start diving into some some TV shows or something. Yeah, come on back. Uh, we'll be doing more Star Trek TNG, and then I'm sure there are some more classic TV episodes that I think you guys should honestly do Chernobyl. The um, I, I think I maybe mentioned it in private conversation, but you guys should really do the HBO like docudrama uh, miniseries Chernobyl because it um, it really harangues the Soviet. Um, socialist model as being by and large the the cause of the accident there. Excellent. That is really hot right now. I mean, it's not like nuclear disasters can't happen in other places and haven't happened in other places, but I'm glad to hear that communism takes a good kicking. Yeah, it, it's actually really interesting. And um, I particularly enjoyed it because back when I was getting my degree in biochemistry, I had to take, um, I had to take thermodynamics and uh, like thermodynamics and quantum physics as part of my uh, course load. And so you do study in that significantly. I had to take a whole semester on um, like nuclear physics and it was hellish, but the stuff is so fantastically interesting. Um, well, well, how, how long is the series? Is it something that we would need to do into multi-parts or can we cram it all into one episode? Uh, well, you guys are the experts on cramming uh, things into small holes, so I, I'm not really sure. But um, it's five episodes that are about an hour apiece, and um, you probably have to do it in a two-parter, to be quite honest. But it would split very well into like dealing with the initial disaster itself and then sort of the fallout afterwards. Um, with but I have to maybe I can find somebody who's really good with or who who can really explain the mechanics of uh, nuclear fission for you guys, but that would be really interesting. Cool. Sounds good. Maybe we can check that out. Um, but we can start getting into Kathleen Turner Overdrive, which is a more laid back, chill out by the pool, California gangster party style. Uh, mm. It's available mm. for Patreon supporters at actualanarchy.com slash Patreon. This is actualanarchy.com slash 133, the show notes for this one. But uh, I'll play us out. Uh, check it out at actuallyanarchy.com slash 133 for show notes and more for this episode. Thank you, the professional house, for being our guest on this Father's Day episode talking about Legends of the Fall. And uh, we'll say goodnight. See you next week on Tropic Thunder, everyone. Peace Good out, night, everybody. Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 do
In the early days of the internet, radical libertarians were scattered, lonely, and faceless. Without direction, they resigned to scour the web, sifting through content providers in a wasteland plagued by YouTube demonetization, Facebook jail, and covert internet censorship. But then, in 2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers, all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com.